Hey folks, this is Will. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kanyela Ng. I wanted to note that we had this conversation in midsummer before the devastating fires that swept Maui in early August. Kanyela has been heavily involved with the recovery effort, but he was able to find some time to send us this update with information about how you can help. Take a listen. The wildfires on my home island have really been a wake-up call. Like, I do this work full-time, and I still talk about it, like, whether or not my kid will have, you know, fresh air, clean air and water when he's my age. But the real urgency is tomorrow when you wake up, the school your kids go to, the grocery store you shop at, the church you've gone to since you're a kid could be burnt to the ground, reduced to ashes. Like, that's the urgency we're working under. Um, and it's disappointing to see the lack of safety net we have here at Maui. Um, and, but it's also heartening to see, um, you know, people rise up and help each other through community hubs, we're calling it, um, over a dozen that popped up. Um, and we've been raising money to um, not just for direct relief, but as the cameras leave, as they are now, um, longer term recovery and restoration. Uh, Lahaina used to be a a lush wetland. It would have never caught fire um, before colonialism. So a lot of the community leaders want to restore it to that. And what we're seeing is this fight is fiercely political. Most of the disaster capitalism isn't just happening with individual realtors. It's a uh, regulatory, legislative, and political fights. So we're organizing people to do needs assessments and wellness checks now, um, neighbor to neighbor, um, understanding that once help is gone, we want to make sure they're empowered and not left helpless. And then uh, down the line, actually, like rebuild homes together. And um, maybe the next day, the same 100 people or so testifying in council. And in fact, we didn't expect this to happen so quickly, but it's already happening. Hundreds of people are turning out to council meetings, to water commission hearings, and uh, building temporary shelters together as a community. It's it's really beautiful. So, um, you know, we did this campaign called Lahaina Strong, and it's... Uh, Thousands of people have already done needs assessments, and they're really just building the power needed to to fend off uh, disaster capitalism and restore uh, Lahaina to, to what it used to be, a place that focused on human needs uh, above all else and put, <laughs> you know, generational residents over the needs of tourists. So, yeah, any any support is much appreciated for this effort. It's MauiRecoveryFund.org. Like, we're, we're going to need a lot of fuel because this is a long-term fight. Again, that's MauiRecoveryFund.org. MauiRecoveryFund.org. Any help is much appreciated if you're able to contribute to this ongoing effort. Thanks. And now to the episode. This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. I've been on both sides now, where it's like you elect someone and then you feel like they burn you. Or you get elected, and then, like, where are the people that, that like, where are the activists now? You're getting wined and dined by lobbyists, and you keep saying no to other cocktail meetings, and you're becoming a pariah, and you have no home. You know, like, we got to treat, like, these are still people, and they still want, like, a community of people um, around them. And if, if only the lobbyists are offering that, like, what do you expect to happen? Hello and welcome to The Hegemonica, a podcast from Convergence Magazine. This is a show about social movements and politics, strategy and ideology, the immediate present, and the rapidly onrushing future. 
I'm your host, William Lawrence. I spent my 20s as a member of grassroots social movements, most prominently as a co-founder and national leader of Sunrise Movement, the youth organization that put the Green New Deal on the political map. Now I'm in my early 30s trying to make sense of what we've collectively learned in this last decade plus of social movements and heightening social crises. I talk with activists and researchers on the left, exploring the guiding theme of power, what it is, how it's exercised, and how it's distributed. What has living through these last several decades of increasing political and economic turmoil taught us about the relations of power here in the United States and worldwide? And in what directions do these lessons take us as we design strategies to build power from below to win basic rights, securities, and justice? I'm glad to be joined today by Kanyela Ng. Kanyela served for six years in the Hawaii House of Representatives as a grassroots-focused left-wing legislator. In 2018, he ran for U.S. Congress as part of the first Justice Democrat slate, and since then has been a national organizer and campaigner in support of the Green New Deal. He's now the executive director of the Green New Deal Network, a coalition of grassroots, labor, and climate and environmental justice organizations. My favorite thing about this interview is the depth of Kanyela's political experience in the gray era at the intersections of electoral politics, protest movements, and organizations. These are challenges that many of us have dealt with over the last 10 to 15 years, and some for much longer. But Kanyela's time in the Hawaii legislature gives him firsthand experience with the ins and outs of political power that very few other millennial organizers have. The conversation opens up several of the key themes I'm hoping to address on the show, including the relationship between electoral campaigning and grassroots protest movements, the relationship between left-wing electeds in office and the progressive political movements who elect them, and what it's going to take to build a transformational, counter-hegemonic political force that is relevant to and rooted in people's everyday experiences and their most urgent needs. Kanyela, it's great to have you here. Why don't you start by introducing yourself, a bit about your background, and what you're doing now. Pleasure to be here. My name is Kanyela Ng, uh, pronouns he, they, oya, or really anything with respect. Uh, I come from a working poor environmental justice community. Uh, you know, it's the kind of community where you don't know anybody whose parents are do- doctors or lawyers. So, like, the jobs you really shoot for is to be, like, a firefighter or police and that's like the leaders in your community, really. And uh, uh, it would, used to rain sugarcane ash on us by uh, industrial agriculture. So everybody had asthma. Uh, sports was big. It was like there was a rodeo. It was, it was that kind of... Most people, when they think of Hawaii, don't think of rodeo, but that, that was my community. But uh, yeah, so th- so that's that's my background. We, came, we, were, we were very, very conservative. My dad was a born-again Christian, really believed in, you know, making your own way. So he was an LWU. Uh, server for for a while um, and kind of made it in that world. He was like the head server for like the big hotel, but really wanted to sell insurance. He thought that was his ticket to financial freedom. Um, and he was very good at it. And he, he was like a natural organizer. So he got like all the all the people he knew to, to join him. But the problem is all the people he knew, Hawaiians and Filipinos and local folks were didn't have money. So even though he was doing as much work as like the white folks that he admired, uh, he wasn't uh, quite making the same kind of money. Um, but then he passed away when I was 11, uh, unexpectedly. So um, that's that's where I really got politicized. I realized that you know hard work isn't it. 
I, I was working at the pineapple fields at 14. My mom was working th- two or three jobs, uh, and we still needed help from the church, from the government. Um, so that's, that's essentially what shaped who I was, activism, politics, and college, um, first-generation college. So it was, it was kind of shocking just to see the opportunities available. Um, Tea Party Wave hit, got involved in the state legislature, and then national organizing around climate, and then here I am. Um, I'm now the national director of the Green New Deal Network, uh, which we helped stand up back in 2020, and um, it's just great to be uh, circling back to you all. It's good to see your face. So as you mentioned, uh, you've got at least, I'd say, 15 years uh, or so. You, You mentioned getting involved in college. We're about the same age. So we're we're around 15, maybe a little more years deep in being involved in progressive organizing, advocacy, however you want to call it. Uh, the big themes of this show are strategy and ideology with a big focus on power, what it is, how it's wielded, how it's used against us, how we can get some for ourselves. You know, these are things we've both been working on over the last 15 years. Uh, And part of the reason for the show is an opportunity to kind of reflect on that uh, duration and sort of take a minute to see what we think we've learned. So as a way of opening that up, I I wonder just like what you're grappling with now and you're thinking on these topics about like the most basics of strategy, what we should be doing or ideology, how the world works uh, and how has that changed over uh, these last 15 years? Yeah, that's a great question. If only I had all the answers. But I can tell you, I mean, from from my experience, I actually first got started in protest back in high school when, oh, yeah, one part of the story I omitted was I, I got into a school that was for Native Hawaiians. Um, our last, one of our last princesses gave her entire endowment, like not to her children, but to the people to educate Hawaiians. Um, and it's now like a $12 billion institution. Um, so, you know, someone like me from my background was able to attend for free and it would have, you know, the tuition would have been higher than Punahou. That's the famous school that uh, Barack Obama went to. Uh, it's like a rival of, of Kamehameha, the school I went to. Uh, anyways, there was a, a white student that didn't get let in because the school gave preference to Native Hawaiians because that was the princess's will. Um, and this individual sued the school all the way up to the Supreme Court using precedents from that was set to protect black folks during the civil rights era. And there was a massive protest because not only would have this changed the admission policy for this school, but it had the potential to dismantle all programs, uh, federal programs and state programs meant um, to for the betterment of Native Hawaiians uh, for our Lahui, our nation. So uh, there was massive protests. And it was the f- first time I'm like with, you know, we're wearing our red shirts, 10,000 Kanaka on the street. And it just felt comfortable. Like, you could do this? Like, this is something you could do. And everyone around me was like, felt the same way, right? And like, coming from the same point of view, I'm like, this is how white folks must feel all the time. (laughs) You know, it was a great feeling. So um, there was that. And then, then, you know, you start hearing like, oh, what about the people that have power? Um, the the po- political system, these elected officials. And there's kind of a, there, there's like either or, right? There's like a protest. And the protesters are saying like, no, don't get involved in electoral politics. That's all bullshit. We just got to hit the streets. And then you have like the electoral side that's saying, if only these protesters would show up and testify and run for office, 
and that was my orientation. So and you, you were know, seeing that it, right from the beginning, it, coming out of these fights. Right from the beginning, yeah, right from the beginning, and especially in college when I started like understanding the electoral process more. But what was missing is everything in between that, like the protests, the react, usually reactionary protests to block some kind of acute trauma, um, and then like elections, which is so out of the culture that I was raised in to even think about that. Um, but then everything in between is what uh, we now, or at least I understand now as organizing. And it was completely foreign to me because I don't come from like a Chicago or a New York or places in the Southwest where organizing, where it has deep roots in the civil rights mm-hmm. era and um, organizing is part of the culture. Um, and it doesn't help that, um, you know, most of the, organizing and activism around native Hawaiians and our sovereignty is doesn't even see the U.S. as like a legitimate power. Um, it doesn't see us as a state. So like it's like a lot of people think it's heavy or like not right to even get involved in that process. So um, it was a long journey from there to, to where I am of, of my focus being more in the in the gray era between protests and elections and seeing how they interact and then every step in between. Can you remember a moment when you were, I guess, feeling challenged by or coming to believe that maybe some of this more political side of things had merit and could actually help be a part of the puzzle to reach your goals against that view that says it's all kind of, you know, off limits, especially because, uh, you know, it's it's uh, maybe tangential to the. Uh, sovereignty and liberation struggle? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a big fight about whether or not Native Hawaiians should be federally recognized by the U.S. as a tribal nation. You know, most of the hardcore activists said no. Um, a lot of the more intellectual, like law school type uh, activists and academics said yes. Um, and I, I definitely saw both sides. But to me, it was like the essential question was like sovereignty was was about power. Like what, like, let's say we not only got federal recognition, but even um, got independence, which a lot of the people against federal recognition really wanted. Like there are other countries, island nations that received independence from the, that won independence from the United States and other colonial powers that if you talk to them, like how free are they really? Like, do they have economic freedom? Do they have freedom, but militaristic freedom. Um, well, you know, maybe they have their nation and their constitution, but they still have a large presence of the U.S. military bases on their islands. Um, we can look at Okinawa or the Philippines um, as examples. Um, so I, how do you build power has been like the, the big question on my mind and what, what obstacles are getting in the way. Um, so when it comes to like elections, um, you know, I got involved in elections personally when like the Tea Party wave hit and there was a dude that wasn't from, you know, there's never been someone that was native Hawaiian, let alone from Hawaii representing the district I lived in uh, ever. It's always been a white dude from California generally and uh, all, usually a rich, rich person. So it's a Republican district um, by and large. But, um, you know, we figured that um, he wanted to cut like all these programs that I relied on to survive growing up. And like, if he had his way when I was a kid, uh, I'd probably be homeless or I'd probably be in jail or something. I don't know. Um, so th- that's why the stakes were, were high. I'm like, no, 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 this stuff matters. You know, like we can't let this guy 
make laws that impact um, people like me. Thanks. That's uh, <laughs> you were ahead of the wave, you know, because uh, this was in 2012. And it, in my version of the story, as I remember it, you know, it was sort of like there was a primarily protest and street movements that were uh, on the move among people our age during the Obama years, BLM, Occupy, various iterations of the climate movement, the dream movement. And then it was sort of like, and that was mirrored around the world, uh, you know, by the um, September 5th, 15th, uh, you know, uh, occupations in Spain. And anyway, there's stuff happening all over Europe and the Arab Spring. And then it was more in the second half of the decade that in Europe and the United States, at least, it sort of took on this more electoral expression. But you were actually ahead of the wave, um, uh, which must have been that you were very attuned to the possibilities. While I think a lot of other people were still sort of, um, you know, there was a big divide between the electoral realm and the street protest realm that you're describing. Um, So I'm interested to hear what that campaign was like in 2012, trying to like be one person, um, you know, trying to find a new way of doing politics in a way that was more for your community and more honest to who you were than the models you had seen. Yeah, I love that framing. I mean, Obama was like in Obama 08 was exciting. I was that was the first time I voted. I think I was what 19 18 i don't know i was in college and they had like a polling place at college um, on campus and i don't know it felt it felt exciting and i'd never been excited about an election before that so that kind of like gave me the idea that you know running is is an option um and in fact like to to back up a little bit i was like a normal student like i was i had long hair like you will like you do now <laughs> I, I uh i was mostly into i'd stay up to like 3 a.m playing music i sometimes missed my first class you know like i i i was relaxed i was really laid back but um i realized again that representation wasn't quite right this is actually before i ran for office there was like mostly one frat controlled by like just rich white guys um, very conservative dudes that ran the ran the student government. Ninety five percent of the student government was out of state, and only thirty percent of the student body was out of state. So it was like pretty alarming when you actually look at it. And I was like, man, there, I've seen student movements now, like you know, from the Obama years, but even across like internationally, um, like things were ramping up. But like here at my campus. They're spending all their student government budget on Oktoberfest, which is not <laughs> part of local culture <laughs> at all. Uh, so it's like, okay. Uh, so, you know, we ran a campaign, put the Hawaii back in UH. I don't think I use that kind of messaging now, but uh, we donated, we got like t shirts donated from a friend, and then we like sold those for like, or took donations for like $10 each. Then we just did like barbecues and, that's when I really got started in, in elections. So, um, yeah, that, that, that was actually like the big one for me. And it, it actually came from the excitement from Obama. Now, like in many ways, I think a lot of young people like me were let down by the, uh, Obama administration, you know, it just seemed like they were trying to please everyone. Uh, and I don't know, I, there's like a lot of like racial dynamics and other dynamics that it's hard to just put blame on Obama because the forces around them, um, especially now that I'm older and I understand like social power. Um, 
but uh, I remember being feeling really let down by that administration. So when I was uh, when it was 2011 and it was time for me to step up at the at the house, um, I, I made it a point to not rely on on uh, you know the oligarchical yeah. arrangement of institutions and goes directly to the people. So, so I knocked on 12,000 doors um, and that's the way we were able to flip um, the district to not just support a Democrat, but I was, I was actually up against three much better funded Democrats as well in the primary, but um, support a progressive candidate that was actually pushing a lot of policies that some folks would call socialist. That's a really interesting account of how your disappointment with Obama quite immediately and directly led into a commitment to practice a different kind of politics rather than going to the corporate backers, taking it straight to the people and sticking true to a radical platform. So again, I think that what was exciting about Obama though is he like connected to the culture and like most candidates right, don't. Right. So it's like that's the good thing, right? It's like how do I connect to the culture but like also not like cow to, you know, uh-huh. So what are the things, kind of things that you would do to connect with the culture in the way that you were moving? Obviously, you knock on doors and talk to people, but what was it about how you were moving or the events you would put on that made it work? I mean, like at the time, I shaved my head, I think. This is this <laughs> seems superficial talking about the way I look, but like this stuff matters, right? So like I, I shaved my head and I was like, that was just kind of my look after college. And I was like, hey, like, I think that was kind of Obama's appeal, too, right? He just looked like, you know, someone from Chicago. And I just looked like someone from from Maui. I talked like someone from Maui. I didn't hide my accent. Even when I was in, like, the richer areas, I wore the Aloha shirt. I wore a massive lei, like the big red lei that Elvis wears in Blue Hawaii. I wore that everywhere. Just, 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 just doing, just being how people are, because not, not the boilerplate Democrat. And I think that's actually, like... I don't know if we're going to get into it, but that's that's a big reason why I think like the the Republican and the MAGA movements gaining so much steam is they found a way to connect to the culture, not just white MAGA culture, but the culture in pretty much every community everywhere. Yeah. Interesting. Um, So I'm curious about you said you gained an appreciation of social power over time, and I'm sure that being in the legislature gave you a sense of how economic power and social power like have bearing on political power in legislatures. So uh, tell me about some of the lessons of power, lessons in power that you picked up in your time in the legislature. Sure. Um, Power is hidden. I think that's a fundamental principle of organizing that there are folks in the shadows just because someone's loud in the front of the room. It doesn't mean that they're the ones really calling the shot. Um, union organizers have this notion, have this kind of law that if you really want to know who the leader is, don't look for like the most gregarious personality, um, but rather just ask a few people, workers, um, you know, when something's hard and you don't know what to do, who do you go to? And the chances are, the majority of them are going to name the same person and that person is the true leader <laughs> um, and they generally tend to be people you wouldn't expect like sometimes like the older auntie or um you know someone who's a little bit more demure um on the at least on the surface so you know 
that's been my experience in the legislature. It's actually a great, especially in Hawaii, with a like our we have a Jap we have a a strong American um, uh, Japanese population, um, and you know culturally, this is how I was raised too. Um, you don't really make eye contact much. You you're very humble. Um, you don't talk about yourself or others in in public. Uh, so you know there there's not a lot of showboating, um, and. Uh, yeah, so like a lot of things happen behind closed doors. Um, the other thing that was striking in the legislature is people don't. I, I know it's easy for folks to be like, "Oh, these these are a bunch of people are corrupt. Um, they don't have good intentions," but like they don't see things that way. The majority of my colleagues thought they were good people doing gr- doing good work. Um, they just saw the world a lot more a lot differently than I did. Um, they didn't think the system was corrupt. They didn't think the system was rigged or broken or anything. Uh, they just thought like they were being realist and I was being uh, too idealist at times um, just because I was focusing on the actual root and needs, um, root of the problem and needs of the people. So like, yeah, that's another. Did you um, find that, I mean, this is, and, I see this happening and it's a fact that they're just quite literally sheltered. I mean, they're, they're, they're rich and privileged or they're upper middle class or they're solidly middle class, but they're like not really, with very few exceptions, in touch with poverty, people who end up being legislators. And sometimes they see it and they actually end up shocked by it <laughs> for a moment, <laughs> I've also observed. Um, but then somehow you get back to a place where they're able to forget it. And of course, their, their interests and their donors and all the rest, uh, you know, are, are happy to help with that. It's not true in Hawaii, at least, that they're all like from the rich. Many are because their salaries are so low that, you know, you can't really make a living. So you it's usually people with second incomes, usually lawyers. But um, many are from the working class. But once they get in, um, this is like their entree into the political world. And they don't know the other side. Like there's no home other than um, you know the, the the oligarchy, like the oligarchical structures that that uphold um, the status quo. So it's like when in the you're either an insider or an outsider. There's very little wiggle room in between, and you got to choose. And at first, maybe your first term or while you're running the first time around, you'll get support from both sides. Um, and but like right when they know who you are, they'll just push you out of the club. So a lot of these working class politicians who get in, um, they they follow the light of power and end up, um, you know, captured. So when you don't, like, what's Ilhan Omar? Great example, right? I think when she was running for for Congress, folks were like giving her the benefit of the doubt. Folks on the on the inside giving her the benefit of the doubt, but once they realize what her politics truly were, they're like, oh, we're not passing your bills. So that's been that, that was like the biggest struggle. After a few terms of passing good bills, they're like, no, Kanela, we we see you. We see you're trying to. We see if you if you got your way, we'd all lose a lot of money and power, it's, and that's essentially it. So then they started coming hard after me and primarying me and all the things. Why would we help you on the short term, even on something that we don't really care or we might care to be about? Because bottom line, your agenda is contrary to ours. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. You know, we've seen this un- uh, unfold with the squad. I think uh, in the in in the legislature and what kind of movement and political infrastructure as a left do we need in order to elect socialist or 
left or progressive candidates and then allow them to truly act with political independence over time and prevent the capture that you're describing, but also allow those people to hold their seats. <laughs> um, I think sometimes mm -hmm. we want to talk about accountability as if it's simply a moral calculation where we need more accountable uh, uh, working class and progressive or left legislator. We need more accountable DSA members in, uh, in Congress when really the question is still a matter of power and what it is that we can actually offer to our own candidates. Not because it's a purely transactional relationship, but because like, if we want them to be members of our community, <laughs> they need to be members of our community and our organization and to be able to be embraced when they do really hard things or they take votes that like, are going to absolutely have people with knives in their hand trying to get them, you know, because that's the reality of taking the tough votes. And sometimes I think we don't quite understand the reality of what it means to take tough votes or to become the sworn enemy of the establishment when the legislature is essentially all a patronage operation, as you said. And it's about who can get what from leadership in exchange from for their own loyalty to the leadership. But to become an outsider to that is uh, you know, we need a lot of reinforcement. So that was a bit of a ramble by me, but I, I, I see people kind of missing the point on this sometimes. Yeah, 100%. And I, I think that's something in your last question I should have mentioned. Like, people think it's just money and donations that drive legislators, uh, or they think it's um, political party agendas. Um, but in my experience, especially in a, like a mostly blue-dominated legislature, it was this question of who's in leadership. Um, so in the state house in Hawaii, there's 51 members. So every vote was like, they count the 26. And it's like a referendum on on the speaker. Every vote, every every major vote. And it's like, if if the speaker wants something and doesn't get the 26, then you see a dissident like quietly trying to organize, trying to do the math to see if they can become a speaker next, right? Like that's, that's how the world works in, in the legislature or, or you have a like, little block and factions and who's who's um you know forming coalitions uh so when you have a two-party system you kind of naturally see like the coalitional government um that we see in like parliamentary systems um pop up just more de facto um and uh that that drove like the majority of decisions um and of course like each faction is is supported by a different um, institutional alignment or arrangement of, you know, media folks, contractors, unions, um, they all have their favorites. So uh, you're not just representing your community, but you're representing those interests. Now, there's a question of accountability. Like, it's shocking to me that, like, the most obvious point is generally missed of, like, who are elected officials accountable to? If you're AOC, are you accountable to socialist nationwide yes but who are you sworn to be accountable to by the constitution it's your voters and if your voters in queens or in my case in kihei um, want something and they need something and leadership can develop it and then you have these people that are counting on you like statewide or nationwide to like be their poll bearer that's a tough that's a tough position like in my in my community the only reason why i won in a Republican district is because they needed a new high school. And I made the argument that I'm going to deliver that high school. And it, it got built. I feel great. Finally, it took forever. But um, if I were to burn leadership too many times, they would just cut that that item out of the budget. 
and then like and then, then I'd be accountable. I'd lose my seat, right? So it's like having creating a space on the left where where because I don't want to like be ap- apologetic for elected officials who are voting the wrong way. I just think there needs to be like the the institutions we've created from like Justice Democrats to the work that Sunrise did on elections to creating like a home like called WFP tries to do and a lot of like people's action oriented multi issue um, type um, groups are doing is good. Like I think that it, it is the key. We just need to scale that up. And we need much more of it, um, but also a lot more focus on like this movement governance and co governance. Because I've been on both sides now, where it's like you elect someone and then you feel like they burn you, or you get elected and then like where are the people that that like, where are the activists now? You're getting wined and dined by lobbyists and you keep saying no to other cocktail meetings and you're becoming a prior and you have no home. You know, like we got to treat like these are still people and they still want like a community of people um, around them. And if if only the lobbyists are offering that, like, what do you expect to happen? So there needs to be like we need to f- crack this nut of co-governance. But I think we're getting there. Um, but it has to be local is what you're saying, because it, it, it has to be anchored in a strong local power base. There's really no way around that. And then. You know, I think some people would probably want to make the argument that we should be uh, developing more political independence as socialists. And that means actually we should take the risk that the school doesn't get built because it's more important to be truly independent, even if you run on the Democratic ballot line, to be identified as independent uh, politically and uh, because that will have other payoffs. You know, we'll be able to do stronger organizing or whatever. But you actually have to be able to make the argument that not taking the opportunity to get the school built is going to be a more viable path to power for the people that we care about than getting the school built in the short term is. And I think that's a really interesting strategic divide between, I think, the the path that says get the school built you know, it's like the policy feedback strategy is what some people have called it. We want to be able, as leftists, to participate in coalition governments with liberals and win things and be seen as the ones who have delivered them, because then people will believe that socialists have their interests more in mind and can govern better and deliver better. That will allow us to win, um, you know, bigger, bigger rewards. That's what the strategy that I hear you laying out. And I think it's going to be a really interesting one to explore over the course of this pod. The people who are pretty convinced that that is the way and we need to just try to figure out how to do that better in a more integrated manner uh, versus uh, taking a path that is, is, is more independent still, but also more factional and not relying on the policy feedback as a key part of the process. Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think you nailed it. It's a question of power. Like, First of all, you don't want to burn. If 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 you promised a kid, a parent with a sixth grader that you're going to get a high school, you better get that <laughs> yeah. high school for them. You know what I mean? Like, it's hard to just be like, is it worth it for like the broader movement? Um, now, if you could make that case, that case needs to include like, you need to be like accountability goes both ways. It's like, where will you basically martyrize yourself for us? And and where are you going to like you're going to you're going to lose your next election? We will have a home for you. It, the, that needs to be part of the argument, right, of, of accountability. That's what the other um, side does. That's like, why they always end up – that's why the revolving door exists because they just get a lobbying job if they take a tough stand and they lose their vote or whatever. They, they take care of their people. I mean I'm thinking about the Republicans especially, but the, the centrist Dems Yeah, and too. it's not just like an individual – it's not just an individual fa- favor. It's like 
it's like we have this like socialist in office like if they lose power what does that mean for our whole movement just because like you know we wanted to be pure in this one stance and not take this one vote that leadership wanted in order to, to for this um you know capital improvement project priority that he that they may have um and you know it's just like it, it feels good like i've been the sole vote on a lot of things the sole no vote it feels amazing uh and you get a lot of kudos for it um and you're kind of a hero on the left um but then what you know then like three of your legislators uh, your colleagues who introduced the bill don't like want to want to kill your next bill like your your socialist bill on the next on the next uh, session so um you know there's all the trade-off and i think just being in conversation with with key leaders on the ground and being like hey like if i take this vote i know you want me to like do this sim- essentially symbolic vote against the speaker but like then what yeah. you know like what what does that mean for these bills that we're both working on um and like how do we overcome that like i i'm i might be willing to do it but like how are we going to get build power so it's worth yeah. it? This is, and that would require the movements themselves to be able to have, I think, a more transparent view into the kinds of trade-offs that are exists or on the table, and then to be able to like be in dialogue, like you said, and make choices about them. I I found this very difficult when I was doing like political, like kind of political and policy work with Sunrise. We really struggled to figure out how to communicate the complexity of the political arena to our own members in a way that allowed the members to be involved in the political kind of maneuver and trying to make the best choices about how to win the best policy possible. And I think that hurt us, you know, in that we could have been stronger and had a lot more buy-in of all kinds for what we were fighting for and maybe in some cases made better decisions if we had been able to have that link. But it's like in the mess of it's like the fog of war you know when it, 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 when you're trying to make sense especially for the first time really of like how the frick some legislation gets assembled at uh, you know at the congressional level so um anyway we need to do better in the future yeah um the, the pressure is good on both ends organizers and activists should be pushing our own that get into office to spine up and our elected officials should be asking for more grace and patience from the leaders. And but also more power and organization. All... Grace, patience, but also competency and the ability to deliver on commitments. That's right. No, yeah. So that tension will always be there. And then like the one thing that like both sides should be shooting for is the power. Yeah. All right, let's move forward a little bit. Um, you you ran for Congress in 2018 as part of the first Justice Democrats slate, uh, alongside uh, folks like AOC um, and Rashida Tlaib and Ilan Omar. Um, could you tell uh, our listeners just a bit about that campaign, um, uh, what you learned from it, how it was for you? Uh, yeah, so in 2018, I was still in the state house in Hawaii, um, but I've been organizing a lot. So you only have four months of session and the rest of the year, most people are fundraising. Uh, for me, it was like building up organizations, uh, building coalitions to pass bills for the next session. Um, so, you know, I was very much rooted in organizing. So when Justice Democrats was like being started, like I was tracking it, I thought it was very exciting. I wasn't necessarily thinking about running for, for Congress you know, I, I felt like there's still a little bit more work to do. Um, but in terms of 
like I, I was at the point where I moved up in leadership. Like I wasn't a dissident. I was actually in leadership and, and like passing bills. But it was to the point, like I was saying earlier, they they kind of caught on <laughs> that I wasn't necessarily into just pushing the neoliberal agenda. Um, that wasn't, this just wasn't my MO. Um, so they started to ice me out a little um, at that point. So when I got a call from Alexandra um, Roas uh, and to, you know, if I was interested in running, I um, I said possibly. And then a few calls later, um, I said yes. And it was it was exciting. Um, it was an open seat. It was the Congressional District 1. I was actually in Congressional District 2. We only have two in Hawaii. Um, one is like the urban core of Honolulu. The other is rural Honolulu and the rest of the islands. And Congressional District 2 is very much like a lot more progressive, a lot more working class. Um, like most cities, you know, it was a nucleus of power out in the first. Um, but uh, it was like where I was living because I was the legislature was happening, and generally, like people in the city run for city two, and people from city two run for city one. It was just like a mm-hmm. thing in Hawaii um, because it's you only have two seats. It's it's kind of like mm-hmm. the Senate. Um, so I went for it. I sat down with Ed Case. He's a former congressman. Uh, you know, he hasn't had all the name recognition. He told me he wasn't going to run to my face. So I was like, oh, good shot. Let's go. Uh, and we we knew that you have to raise a lot of money for these races, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And we knew that the the people that give, the few people that give that kind of money in our, our small state were not going to support me. Um, so we knew we would have to, nationalize the campaign most likely and get thousands of people involved on the local level um, and have hundreds of volunteers out the problem is that has never been done in hawaii before on the congressional campaign so um you know rather than like starting from the least offensive message we just decided to you know be true and just talk about issues the way i talk about it at home and hopefully that would excite people. Uh, and it did. And a lot of people got involved. It was very exciting. Um, and then it got really it got really intense. They started dropping the hammer on anything they could, uh, you know, every kind of complaint. And this was coming off of, I should say, this was coming off of uh, 2016 where I got primaried by the governor, by a former governor, ran the chief of staff against me. Um, the chief of police was her... <laughs> was your campaign chair um my car got broken into and and like shattered like ripped off the steering wheel and then the police like did nothing they did they did a arrest thing in front of my house because I, I had a parking ticket that wasn't paid off from from when i when i was in session and i left my car at home and it was like it it was intense and, and then fended, uh, on top of that, that like, off in 2016 but then they were i fended it off so that's why like i think that's and i won by a lot so everyone i think at the state level were like um okay he's he's like not going anywhere but then when they saw me run for congress they're like oh this is an opportunity to like end not just beat them but end them mm-hmm. um so then they really went all out um i like i i saw my opposition folder and they 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 they, <laughs> they 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 found everything they could possibly could. I mean, like I I don't have that many demons. Like it's not like I don't know. Like you can talk to my exes and stuff. I'm chill, but um, you know I'm uh yeah what, everything from the parking. What there was to find, they yeah. found. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you uh, 
you cut an incredible ad playing ukulele on the beach and talking about having uh, more time to enjoy life. And um, it, I've never seen anything like it, really, and I, before or since, probably. I'm hoping we can play a clip for our listeners uh, when we produce this. But tell me about um, why you wanted to deliver that message uh, you know, on a big stage. We can have an economy where you only have to work one job. And you know, that's how it used to be. So you actually had time to spend with your friends and family, just chilling on the beach like this, playing music. But now it's like, talk to your friends, you feel like you're like cutting into their productivity yeah, and you're making it harder for them to provide. And that's not how the economy has to be. When we talk about policies like Medicare for all, universal health care, housing for all, public education through college, canceling student debt, like these are policies that would just make everyday working people's lives um, dignified and it would make sure that they're not just living just to work. Well, sure. Well, I didn't, I didn't know it was going to be a big state. We just thought it would be... It went viral. I'm like, I just told Mikey, right? I told Mikey, I'm like, hey, like, it would be cool if we just did an ad where... I'm just playing and then you're just shooting, I'm just talking, and then we can just talk about real shit. I think what, well, what's interesting about American politics is like the two things that I think, even after Obama, like you just, you just don't touch is like this idea that America is exceptional. Like that was like the big one. And then in 2016, I, I saw Bernie like, Oh, Denmark. So you're saying there's this one interview where he was like, so you're saying we should be more like Denmark? And he's like, yeah. He like straight up, you know, he like broke that rule. So then this other rule of like hard work, like you can always talk about hard work in your campaigns and how that's like the virtue of every American that unites all of us. And I'm like, maybe we can challenge that too. You know, like that, that was the point of that ad. If Bernie can challenge American exceptionalism, maybe I can challenge this hustle culture and Keep in mind, 2018 was peak, peak hustle culture, like Mark Wahlberg, wake up at 4 a.m., cold shower, <laughs> all the things. And I just want to do the opposite. I'm like, like, what if we had a society where you had only had to work four hours? Like, what would that do for not just us as productive citizens, but as creatives, as artists, you know, as human beings, like unlock our creative potential, like unleash our our humanity like reanimate us as 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 children and human beings like that 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 spirit that that shines the brightest like this idea that that peak human humanity is you know like when you when you when your grandma's like oh you talk about your cousin oh he he went to law school yes, he works yeah, 80 yeah. hours and he you know he gets to do this research that allows his firm to dominate other firms 80 hours a week. He did so well for himself. And then he talks about your your other cousin and it's like, oh, she she just goes to the park and she likes to read a lot. Oh, I wonder I wonder when she's gonna get her shit together. It's like it is like that. What? Like what why are we yeah, like what's going on with that with that value system and like is that really like the the peak of what humans provide is is getting their firm to dominate other firms um so, so i think that's the that, that that's what i really wanted to get at like our our lives were much better much more gratifying um we as people flourished at some point of our ancestry no matter if you're white black brown whatever um we all lived more productive lives as in 
we didn't have to work around the clock and we had more yeah. we had our need we had enough we all had enough um so so that was that was the point of that you mentioned u.s exceptionalism the cult of hard work something else that's another sort of third rail in american politics is militarism and is still a major third rail and a trouble spot for the left uh, and it's also something you're very familiar with being in Hawaii, which is a colonized outpost of the U.S. military where you're still struggling with pollution from naval bases and uh, a lot more, I know. So I wonder if you could just uh, uh, speak about that for our listeners. Any reflections on where the left needs to go specifically with regard to militarism and some of the hurdles to getting there? I mean, I was just listening to, I don't know, it was an Intercept or one of the podcasts about like China hegemony and like, you know, adjustments in the world order and all that stuff, frankly, is like above my pay grade. I don't know, <laughs> but I do know like there's like these frames of, you know, left. I, I, I don't quite understand the tradition. I don't think the traditional left right spectrum of international politics is as important of having like a a lens of um colonialism like anti-colonialism and imperialism um even when you look at issues of like left and right when you just talk about when you're talking to people on the so-called right um that might have supported trump or even folks that veer libertarian if you're speaking on issues in an anti-colonial way sometimes it really resonates with even these people um and just the idea that you know like we should not be in active warfare or militaristic involvement in, I don't know, what is it? I think a dozen nations at all times. We don't need this NATO um, mantra of um, like 2% of our GDP should be in the military or more, or that we need enough um, military, military, military funding where it's, we have enough to fight two full-fledged wars greater than any war we ever fought and have enough personnel to defend home. That's literally what they say in conferences, NATO. Um, that's like, that's the standard for U.S. military funding. Like none of that really makes sense. And when you look at it locally, like the way like uh, empire plays out in a place like Hawaii is one third of the entire island of Oahu that houses like 90% of our population is owned by the federal government. About 25% of the island is owned by the military in particular. Um, so when, you know, there was a there was a bill that, there was a proposal by the Pentagon, it was bipartisan, where they're gonna decommission some of our bases and pivot away from Hawaii, downsizing like 30,000 troops. And this is something the military wanted now. And the, military industrial complex, the biggest donors, right? Like like Boeing and Lockheed Martin and all the contractors locally got together and organized every single legislator on this campaign called Keep Hawaii's Heroes. Um, as if these transient, you know, guys that are even from here are, are heroes and not like the Hawaiian activists that like, you know, revitalize the language and all the things. Um, Keep Hawaii's Heroes. And I was the only legislator not to sign it. And that was probably the most intense that was probably the most intense moment. That, that, that's when the, the primary challenge happened. 
Um, it's like literally right after that. The speaker calls me in his office. He says, hey, um, you got to understand like Hawaii needs the military. And I said, like, respectfully, speaker, you got to understand that's the problem. Um, and then he's like, don't be a fry out. I said, OK, I got to go. <laughs> I walked out of the office. <laughs> so that that fucked me up, frankly. But I was the only one. So that's how deep their influence is in Hawaii. But when you actually zoom out, they're like, we can't lose all that money. Right. They're like They have economists that they pay for that say the military brings us three billion dollars a year. But it's like, <laughs> OK, what if we repurpose that money? Because that's still federal money. What if we repurpose that to anything right. else? <laughs> The climate, the clean energy, the housing. Hell, they already have housing. This is one third of an island that has base housing on it. What if they left and we just gave it, gave that to to local people? Um, and and also the three biggest Superfund sites, the only Superfund sites in Hawaii are on or near bases. They're the most, they're the biggest polluters here. Um, and like, what about the cost of of that? You know, like it's not factored into your economic report. So it's just like kind of common sense, uh, but. For some reason that, you know, there's there's no economist writing about that because to, to speak against, to write against the military is, uh, is a death sentence for your career, even if you're an academic. Don't be a pariah. I, we need a few more. We a need pariah. a few more, but then we need, a, we need a cookout for all the pariahs to come to so that we can be part of a community. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, we got to stop it there uh, for today. We didn't even get to the Green New Deal, so you know that we're going to have to talk again sometime. But this was just terrific, and your experience in the legislature in particular, I mean, just speaks to so many of the key issues of what we've learned in that arena over the last decade and, um, you know, what we still have to learn. So thank you again, Kanyela. Um, it was great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. And yeah, anytime. Um, yeah, we should, we should finish okay. this. <laughs> You're listening to Kanyela Ng in conversation with me, William Lawrence, on The Hegemonicon. We did follow up, actually, to finish the conversation several weeks after the first interview. We talked about the Green New Deal and the challenges and contradictions of being a radical in the nonprofit organizing sphere. We'll get to that after a short break. Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence Magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small, independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com slash convergencemag. Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening. All right, good to see you, my friend. I'm back with Kanyela Ng to uh, continue the conversation we started last month. Great to see you, Will. So we... I think left off after talking about 2018, we talked about your time in the legislature. We talked about the uh, U.S. congressional primary in 2018. And after that is when we met, which is when you ended up becoming a national organizer in the movement for a Green New Deal, um, which is still what you're doing today. Um, And when you and I met, you were the Green New Deal campaign organizer for People's Action. So I'm curious, um, after your congressional run, why did you decide that the Green New Deal was the direction for you to go with your organizing? Yeah. Um, so 
having served a few terms in the state legislature, like I knew that the things that I was going to pass, that I had the power for, that the movement had enough power for in Hawaii, like we did, you know, we, we did as move as much as we could pass the first hundred percent renewable goal statewide. Uh, in my district, we funded the state's first uh, zero emissions high school, uh, which actually just got built now. <laughs> but, um, you know, we expanded the fisheries, like a lot of things. But, you know, in your office, I think we talked a bit about this earlier, is you can be a, the tip of the spear, but you can't be the force behind it you need like the movement and it just wasn't there. So I knew that I had to run for higher office to have like more of a platform. And if not, then do something else, probably get in the movement. So I think it's the opposite of what we tell a lot of people in the movement, like, Oh, are you ever going to run for office? And I'm like, I I sometimes advise against that. It depends on like the power that they have. It's like, sometimes you're more powerful outside. So I realized that, that was probably the case. And actually looking back, if I were to get into Congress in 2018, I'm not sure I would have had more of an impact than I'm having as an organizer now. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm changing the world like as an individual, but just like my my uh, little, li- little drop in the bucket, I think is actually greater than being just like a, you know, a lefty in, in like that mess, the soup of, of DC. So, uh, especially yeah. a minority. yeah exactly so that's what got me going uh into organizing it's just just like having an impact and and uh, moving forward the issues that we need yeah so the uh you've had a couple different roles in this space but the uh, first one was with people's action and you were working with um grassroots membership organizations of working class people who were standing up against environmental and economic justice i wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about um the kinds of groups you were working with uh, at People's Action and how they were and are using the Green New Deal as a platform to fight for their interests on the ground. Uh, yeah, so People's Action is an organization that taught me a lot. Like, I didn't really hear about them much in Hawaii because they didn't have an organization here. But once I got more into organizing and like ran for Congress, you, I came across them a lot more. They're kind of rooted in the Midwest Academy, I guess, Alinsky tradition in some ways of organizing where there's no, there's no fight too small, really. Like you can start, like the point is getting people to care about something, getting a win and then like moving, like organizing communities from there. Um, so like anything from trash pickup to a stop sign, uh, a project in the community and then kind of seeing themselves as not just you know, like leaders in their own families or like, and, and, and actually understanding that like they could have their hands on the levers of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there building out, cause you know, before that I was really, I, I was following a lot of what Sunrise was doing and like the momentum model, which is like big picture, big organizing and like get as much people excited as you can. Um, but you know, I think that's really important, but when when you play the tape it's like people that are that think that way and have that level of confidence um mm-hmm. that they can actually affect change tends tends to skew like more middle class more white so to actually get like black and brown folks and the most impacted in the movement takes a a lot more attention um and i think that's what people's action was really great at and not just like black and brown folks a lot of their organizing was in like really white areas and rural white areas and i think 
they, they're able to cut to figure out ways to reach out reach people that are have felt ignored for a lot of generations especially by the democratic party and people who are going um into like the maga movement now so it just mm-hmm. felt like it's really important to cast these people now before um mm-hmm. you know the the fascists get a hold of them so yeah it was like it was that kind of organization they believe that we as organizers don't have all the answers we need the, that people that we're trying to represent are the experts of their own experiences and mm-hmm. what's more important than uh, moving them and directing them to do things is listening, like truly listening to what the community needs and then starting from that place. And then um, so like really taking that meeting people where they are uh, kind of cliche at its yeah. like purest form. So what in listening, what what have you heard about translating the big vision of the Green New Deal, which is supposed to be this, uh, you know, alliance of economic and racial justice and climate action um, all in one. What have you heard about translating that vision or that idea into something which people can organize around and which really speaks to their immediate concerns uh, in the places they live? Yeah, so I think if you if you just say Green New Deal, even if they heard of the bill, they don't necessarily see themselves in it. Even if they really support it, like that sounds great. Like, oh, rail from, you know, the edges of our state to the other end, like amazing. Um, but my kid doesn't have shoes. Does your organization provide shoes? It's like that kind of mm-hmm. thing, right? When you actually go knocking on doors. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's like, it kind of underscores the need for building coalitions, not just with the groups that we would think are obvious, like labor and, um, you know, environmental justice groups, power building groups, big greens, but also like mutual aid networks and groups that can get people beyond like that mode of survival. Um, and I think any community when a face, when faced with acute trauma, like if there's a incinerator that's killing kids, they're going to fight it. We can count on them coming out and like stopping the bad. The harder part is building the good. And the Green New Deal provides that framework where we can actually like have an affirmative vision for people living in really dire um, circumstances. So, but like, you know, just talking about it in, in like the broad abstract sense isn't, doesn't usually work. Um, but if you like, let's say if I knock on someone's door and I'm like, Hey, you know, lots of changes in our community. There's like federal money. We want to make sure it's like, like this big bill just passed. We want to make sure it's, it's reaching communities. Like we need, I know like there's that brownfield across the street. There's not an elementary school. Like just name a couple of projects. Like which of the projects like do you think is like the most, like highest priority for you? And like that kind of thing. Or like, is there another one that we're not thinking of? Oh, by the way, there's a meeting coming up. Would you want to join? Could I put your name down? I think that's the kind of conversations you really need to have that's really focused on localized projects uh, rather than just a national vision of the Green New Deal. Something that's been missing, I think, a little bit. Yeah, we've got one of those schools. It's a it's basically asbestos-riddled school next door. I can look out my window right now, and it's uh, it's been empty for 10 years. It's exactly the kind of spot that would be a site for that kind of organizing you're talking about and everybody on the block wants to know what's going to happen with that with that property um so if we can't figure out how to answer that question then we're definitely doing something wrong i agree with you yeah it's like if, if you're to ask everybody like like how do you feel about the inflation reduction act or 
you know, what do you think about 100% renewable goal? Like, you're going to get maybe five activists on a on a petition if you went door to door. But if you're asked, like, you know, about that school, you could fill out a petition really quickly, like with hundreds of names. I love that. Um, so you are now the executive director of the Green New Deal Network, which is a national coalition of every grassroots community organizations like People's Action, unions, youth and environmental justice groups. Um, you and I really spent some time, along with a lot of other people, working to bring this coalition together uh, about three or four years ago. And and now uh, you're still there doing important work. So what are the most exciting projects that you're working towards now um, as part of the Green New Deal Network? Yeah, so we're, we are trying to implement uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, make it actually go to the communities that are in need. I think when it passed, some people were really skeptical. Some of our members were excited. But I think what everyone can agree on is we don't want the money benefiting the people that do business as usual more than our communities. Like if we don't intervene in its implementation, it could actually make certain injustices worse, Mm -hmm. wealth inequality worse, racial inequality worse. So, you know, we are devoting most of this year to make sure that those resources are getting to the hands of um, communities in need. So that includes like tribes and environmental justice communities suffering from pollution, you know, just, just ways to, to find justice, not just in like the decarbonization goals of climate, but uh, across the spectrum. Uh, so that's one. There's money on the table. It can be a, it can be a tool for building out these kinds of visions that we're talking about with the school. That's right. That's right. Um, and it just makes, let's say if you're doing like a campaign already for, for that new school, it just makes your case a lot easier if you're able to communicate like how your state government can receive it and help them along. Um, then they don't have that excuse anymore to say that we just don't have the resources for it. Um, so, you know, we, we funded 23 of our, our 23 state tables to lead that kind of work this year. Um, but we're also looking ahead at expanding the network. So it's not just like a coordinating team of, of 14 or 15 groups. It's, um, any national group that wants to be a part of the movement for the Green New Deal can join. They might not be like a voting member or have to sit in every meeting, but um, you know they'll find ways to, to, to work with us and kind of expand it that way. Um, and and yeah, and then trying to figure out ways to support like more novel projects happening on the ground, um, even if it's outside of our coalitions um, that that can build up. Uh, help build up our coalitions as well and we're also doing like a green new deal tour similar to what sunrise led back in 2019 where we're having a few stops and just trying to re-energize some of the some of the folks that may have aged out of sunrise or you know may have been disillusioned by um some of the lack of um, momentum behind some of our efforts over the years so we're about to launch that next next month and we're also working on a bunch of green new deal bills with like freshman members of congress that's great i I love to hear that um a lot of that sounds like stuff we were trying to implement uh maybe years ago and to hear that it's it's coming to fruition now is is really exciting um so i just appreciate you continuing to lead on that work earlier in the interview you were talking about the sort of gray area between 
protest movements and electoral legislative politics, the apparent disconnect between that and kind of living in that gray area. Now you're in a different kind of gray area, which is, we could call it the gray area that's at the verge of protest movements, but then also institutional organization. And the Green New Deal was sort of popularized through the unruly protest organizing, but in order to you know reproduce and maintain it, it has been necessary to build this kind of stable infrastructure like the Green New Deal network. But then, of course, there's lots of contradictions in there. So I'm curious how you're thinking these days about how to navigate that gray area. Yeah, I mean, just being like in the nonprofit world is is a challenge for someone like me like we like real talk our movement you want to have the opportunities for people to actually make a living being in the movement like that's Mm -hmm. that's a positive thing um at least in my opinion because without it i could see i mean i probably wouldn't i probably just make my family suffer if this was, <laughs> if I wasn't paid to do this, I'd probably just do it anyways. Um, but I know a lot of people who, you know, are activists or organizers in their, in their early 20s. Um, if there's no opportunity to, like, pay the rent, um, might end up working for a corporation and have their, you know, have their time split or even um, have their ideologies shifted. Uh, so I think it's a positive thing. But the fact is, most of these jobs are supported by billionaire money um Mm -hmm. and that's like a contradiction that you have to live with and navigate at every turn and you know for them it's like it it might make sense to push biden to a certain degree for example on on ira but once it's passed the funders might be like okay let's move on it's time to support biden like stop talking about climate like let's just say that enough happened this term and that's Mm -hmm very difficult to navigate and i think you have to make a choice as like directors of coalitions or nonprofits. like are we going to chase certain money for things that we're not necessarily charged to do um or are we going to be okay with a smaller budget at least temporarily um in order to hold down the line um and you see like certain like you know the bezel Earth fund come in they give 100 million dollars to each of the three biggest greens and then you and then they're like have the loudest microphones and they're saying hundred percent by 2055 now. And like, what does that do to the movement or 2050? I don't know, whatever it is, um, but it's not enough. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's, it's those kinds of challenges you, you, you begin to see. And then you make friends in philanthropy. You, you realize that a lot of these foundations have like program officers that are just like us, you know, they're like great people, but they need to organize up with their boards who tend to be like older richer folks that um you know are open to new ideas but it's they're they're difficult to access even by the program officers so i think one of the key lessons is understanding that every institution that we have to operate in right now is deeply flawed and we just need to find the right people in each institution to work with and build trust with in order to move anything and not, and also understanding that when new energy sprouts off outside of the institutions, we need to embrace that because that's what's really going to shift stuff. So whenever like the new sunrise movement pops off, we shouldn't be like looking at it with you know like skeptically. We should 
kind of welcome that disruptive force, even if it makes our life um, in our in our new roles um, a little bit harder. Because it's just so hard to conjure political initiative from within those nonprofit structures. It's very possible to support and to build infrastructure and to provide resources to do all kinds of things. But like the kind of spontaneity and initiative you're talking about with a sort of group that just pops off is pretty much impossible <laughs> in my experience to build from, uh, from within some of the more sprawling institutions. That's right. And figuring out ways, like, I think, you know, there were a few folks, for example, in the Sierra club that saw sunrise doing their thing or in the early stages and like figured out ways to support them with as much flexibility as possible. Um, I think it's up to people like me, um, you and others to like figure out those opportunities as these young folks start coming up with new ideas. But, you know, I think generally, especially in the climate movement, like let's say there's, I don't know what the number is, maybe 10,000 organizers or activists that do sustained activity um, in terms of campaigning, like beyond just voting, like, you know, calling Congress, right. Whatever it is doing actions, like how many people are those 10,000 people reaching every day, every week? Like how many, like what is our base getting bigger? I don't think it's a good number, you know, <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like that's, that's the problem with like right now, I think in the climate movement in, in like in, you know, within the institutions. So like, how do we change that? I think ideally I, what I would like to see is to like, I don't know if this is a GNDN campaign or something broader, but we need to set like a big goal, like 5 million conversations project over the next couple of years mm -hmm. where the whole movement is focused on actually talking to new people um, and like regular activity. Cause so when people want to sign up, they know what they're signing up for. Like that's, I think that's what makes electoral activities to your earlier question, like so appealing and easy to absorb people is because there's a clear goal and there's clear ways to plug people in. get it. Yeah, people get it. So if it's like Monday, there's going to be a paid, like a canvas. And then like Tuesday, there's a text bank here. Like every Monday, Wednesday and Friday, we do a canvas or a paid canvas even. Like we're paying people per shift um, because people need jobs. Um, and then Saturday, we have like a big volunteer canvas. And then on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we'll have like events or text banking or phone banking. And if it's just like a regular cycle of um, activity to plug people into with like the tools and scripts and everything available, uh, I think we'd be much better off. But a lot of like the job of people like me is is, is educating funders uh, about like why this organizing is necessary because otherwise they default to um, what is it uh, evidence based data testing and messaging which is great but you know <laughs> we're not going to compete with like the Coca Colas in this world with like our yeah. TV ad budgets so like we need to be actually um, having real conversations because the only time movements or anything really works is when the word of mouth starts going around yeah organizing is about more than just hiring people and telling them exactly what to say like yeah. you got to actually meet people where they're at and then build something real <laughs> with real people them. yeah exactly <laughs> yeah this is what we've been doing with our housing organizing here in Lansing from the beginning of this year. We said to ourselves, um, given the state trifecta, which is a new political opportunity, and given the fact that we're here in the capital city, if we in Lansing got 500 people to show out um, at the state capitol on September 5th, um, would that have an impact or would they pay attention, at least 
for a day? Would it stand a chance of opening up some political space? And we said yes. And then we asked people, do you think that just among our relatively small activist community here in Lansing, we could reach 500 people from our own communities, tenants and unhoused people and so forth here in Lansing? And people said, yeah, it might be a stretch, but I think we could do it. And then we've been having those conversations for nine months since then. Well, it's going to be nine months in September, and we're up to 550 people pledged to be there who have said, like, I will be there. And uh, so I'm feeling pretty good on this count of how many people are you actually talking to. But that's definitely not how we normally operate. And the only Mm -hmm. reason this was able to happen was because, like, literally we just decided that – uh, last year we were trying to build an institution that was going to have all the structures and stuff. And it was like hard and slow. And we were kind of like, I don't know if we actually have the appetite to be doing this and raise all the money to build this, hire the staff and the things like that. And we said, what if we just go back to doing something that, you know, is a righteous cause worth fighting for something that people will understand. And the getting it factor is like super key. Cause you say, if 500 people showed up on September 5th to demand these things, do you agree that it, might make a difference and people say hell yeah and then you say all right so be a part of it yeah that's great it's like you know i've seen you in every meeting and it's like well i love you but <laughs> can we get other people <laughs> in this room like i'm sick of your shit uh yeah yeah i mean i think that's like that's like the big agitation that you know is needed you're talking to the same people you're talking to the same people again and again and again among mm-hmm. too small of a circle yeah, and it's great because, like, you know, it, it lets you know who's real and who's like falls out and who to trust um, over what fifteen years of organizing here in Hawaii, for example. But you realize, like, damn, we're not growing. Um, and you know, it, it's cool if it's all these grass tops or like hardcore organizers, and you invite a member of Congress, uh, Congress over to a meeting or like a legislator, and you give them a yes or no answer. Like, there is power there, but they already know your power. Like if you have new people in the room, they don't know how powerful these people are. So it's always important. Yeah. Something I love about talking to you is that you like have moved in all these different spheres from the protest movements to the political campaigning and now in this nonprofit sphere without losing like your clearly radical spirit and attitude. Like I never have a doubt talking to you that you're here to change the whole system and you're on a journey of figuring out how and i wanted to just ask you about that and ask how you stay grounded in that radical vision yeah i mean you know i think generally for these types of questions i have like that bernie-esque answer where like is that radical (laughs) is anything (laughs) we believe at radical um it's like in the end i just want to it's just like we're a nation where there's enough and some people didn't learn how to share as kids and they have a lot of money now and it's a horrible thing. And it's kind of up to us as a democratic society to make them share. Uh, like we have enough where everyone can thrive. Like it's, it's really that simple. And you know, I have two kids now, uh, they're getting older and I just don't want them to have to live in a world where they have to, fetch water from a well 20 miles from here (laughs) you know like it could be really bad with the climate thing and yeah so it's like that it's like that that negative factor just like preventing things from getting really bad but also the possibility like it we have to change almost everything in order to stop the climate crisis 
So even though I didn't start off with like climate as my number one issue, it's like where I want to be because it, it requires the most transformation. Um, so, you know, all the, all the things that we need in terms of like wealth distribution and racial justice and um, ending this extractive colonial way of living um, needs to, in one way or another, be reversed in order to solve this crisis. So, you know, that's why I'm here. And there is a challenge. Like, I don't want to, like, hamper. If we can do some kind of decarbonization effort and, like, tweak some laws that will reduce, you know, global warming by, like, a couple fractions of a degree, like, I don't want to poo-poo that. It's not like I'm, I'm here to, to stop that kind of stuff because that could mean life and death, life or death for, like, thousands, maybe millions of people every, like, fraction of a degree. Um but I also want to make sure that we have our eyes on the prize because it's really easy for the institutions that be to take a small victory, incremental victory, and um, kind of co-op that as, you know, um, the ends rather than uh, a stepping stone to, to what our communities really need. Yeah. So this is the last question then. You know, we started the show talking about Hawaii and the working class Native Hawaiian community that you're part of, you just took it back there. So I just want to uh, ask, what do you envision for the next few decades, whether it's the Green New Deal or something else, just as for where you hope to see the struggle lead uh, in Hawaii? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in Hawaii, we're seeing, I think in a lot of places, we're seeing a disconnect with of the Democratic Party with the culture of a certain place um, that's manifesting in white areas in a profound way where people like blue collar working class, sometimes even union members are supporting Republicans. Um, here in Hawaii, like the Republicans went and fielded some native Hawaiian, like very locally rooted uh, celebrities to run. So this is like BJ Penn, you know, former MMA fighter, um, Brenton Awa, former reporter, and had success. Like it, it doesn't really matter about the policies, really. It's just like people are relating to them because they drive the Tacoma, they speak with a pigeon accent. And I think as as we got into this like technocratic as the Democratic Party got into like this technocratic, meritocratic kind of elitism um they've lost their connection with the with like the working class and and the working class ultimately shapes culture no matter where you are um so i think it this movement like the the kanaka maoli movement understanding that like it's not necessarily like we don't necessarily have to call it progressive even though it is we don't have to call it left even though it kind of is it's just like this decolonial way of thinking and Mm -hmm. um you know, so figure out ways to get like the sovereignty movement and and like this just local culture together. Uh, so we just like to educate people that like I'm Kanaka Maoli, I'm, you know, the native people of Hawaii. We built the most literate nation in the world uh, before we are a state. We embraced new technology before much of the West, quote unquote West, but our nation didn't let families go hungry or unsheltered. Our nation didn't mass incarcerate people. Our nation didn't lead society into climate doom and ecological collapse. Like all of our ancestors had enough to survive. 
um, and they achieved it while working four or less hours a day. Uh, so the structure of this society, colonial society, is not moral, it's not efficient, and if our ancestors can do better, so can we. Like, I think that's the message that is the winning message, and it's like definitely rooted in what we believe in as organizers and on the left, but it's not necessarily like preachy. It's just like there's there's that nostalgic make Hawaii great element to it uh, without being like bigoted because <laughs> right? uh, that's you know when we when we say return to the old ways we don't mean like erasing modernity we mean um, like just reinstating sustainable value systems and um, redefining success so it's more about our relationships and the time we have for them um, and then of course like our economic strength by whether all of us can thrive and not just by how well the rich are doing. And if you tell that to like someone who's voted for Trump, they generally agree. So that that's, mm-hmm. that's some of the work we're doing right now in Hawaii. Kanyala, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much for your time. Um, it's always a pleasure talking to you and hope to have you back sometime, maybe on a panel. Yeah, likewise. It's always great to hear from you. All right. Take care, Will. Thank you. That was Kanyala Ng, Hawaiian organizer and executive director of the Green New Deal Network. I really enjoyed this conversation, especially listening to it again, for Kanyala's firsthand experiences of what it takes to be a rebel left-wing legislator and how social movements, membership organizations, and elected officials can all become clearer and more coordinated in our pursuit of power. This podcast is written and hosted by me, William Lawrence. Our producer is Josh Elstro, and it is published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You can help support this show and others like it by becoming a Patreon subscriber of Convergence for as low as $2 per month at patreon.com slash convergencemag. You can find a direct link in the show notes. That's all for today. We'll be back next time with an interview with Carlos Rojas Rodriguez on his immigrant and labor organizing, fighting for the DREAM Act under Obama, and prospects for the left after the Bernie moment. Thanks for listening to The Hegemonicon.